Welcome to the re-release project of the Keeping Things Alive podcast, which is the republication of episodes that were originally recorded and published between 2016 and 2020 out of Western New York. My name is Laura Evans. I'm a former environmental lawyer, planner, and nonprofit staffer. I also wrote a book called Silent Seasons, Chasing Sustainability Through the Law. The Keeping Things Alive podcast is here to explore the opportunities and challenges as we all live together on this beautiful, living, and interconnected planet Earth. Hello, for this episode of the Keeping Things Alive podcast, I'm sharing my conversation with Samantha Nephew. Samantha is a community organizer for Citizen Action New York State, and she works in their Western New York office focusing on public education in the city of Buffalo. Specifically, one of her main interests is how to integrate holistic practices into the public school's code of conduct. It was great to speak with Samantha, especially because as I've talked with people about this podcast and who I should interview, Samantha has been recommended to me by more than one person, so I was really looking forward to sitting down and learning a lot from her, which is exactly what happened. Samantha and I talk about a wide range of topics, including restorative practices in public schools, her experiences growing up in the city of Buffalo, her perspectives on race and poverty and how it's connected to climate justice, social justice, education. We, we talk a lot about connecting the dots. We also talk about work that other work that Citizen Action is doing, her recent education on this potential constitutional convention, which voters in New York State will decide on in the fall. We talk about Standing Rock. We talk about self-care. Um, the conversation goes a lot of different places, but ultimately it was a really great experience to be able to sit down with Samantha and hear what she has to say. So please enjoy my conversation with Samantha Nephew. Thanks for being here, Samantha. Sure. And I will start with my first question. When people ask you what you do, how do you answer them? Sure. So formally, my position is community organizer with Citizen Action. Um, And what I tell people is to me, what that means is finding people out in the community who are most directly impacted from the in the issues that uh, we work to um, resolve it, uh, problems with, specifically for me, education. So I am looking for in the community uh, the people who are most impacted, generally black and brown children are the most impacted. And we all know that a child's best advocate is their parents. So mm-hmm. I am constantly out there looking for um, the parents or caregivers of black and brown children to better advocate for policies that, one, decrease suspensions, increase attendance in the Buffalo Public Schools. Um, we look for um, parents who can be advocates for um, more school funding from the state. A lot of people I find in the community believe that uh, the city pays the most money into public education, uh-huh. which is not the case. Who does then? Uh, New York State. Ah, okay. And so um, that's why Citizen Action as a statewide organization um, is beneficial in that. So when Buffalo comes together and we bring a busload of people to Lobby Day, say for instance in January, which is what we did this year, um, what we can do uh, in 
coalition with Rochester, uh, Albany, Schenectady, New York City, uh, we can really force the state's hand um, if we have the people power to get more funding in the state budget, which is the biggest, honestly, the biggest fight of the year, um, is to get more school funding for things. So put it this way, um, we fought for a code of conduct, which is uh, the set of rules that dictate how discipline is handled in the schools. Uh-huh. And with the code of conduct, what we have done is include this piece called restorative practices. Restorative okay. practices look at a child as a whole rather than a set of problems, mm. which generally is kind of how they're treated right now in the schools. Yeah. Um, so I always like to use this analogy. Little Jimmy is hanging off the chandelier. Um Right now, he could be kicked out of school and suspended for such for such a thing. Mm-hmm. Restorative practices say, okay, instead of that, we're going to have the teacher or a teacher's aide or somebody in the school on the side reserved for special cases like Jimmy to f- figure out. Okay, there's there must you know kids don't just randomly act up and do that for yeah. no reason. There might be some some form of neglect. Um, maybe they're just not as stimulated and found something else to do. Um, things like that or more specifically for example I met with a parent um her six-year-old or nine-year-old in third grade uh was suspended from school because he used the classroom phone to call 911 really he she says he was bored in class the teacher wasn't paying attention to him and he wanted to talk to somebody but he wasn't allowed to talk to the other kids so he got up and used the phone and called the only number he knows Wow. 911. <laughs> oh my gosh. Yeah. <laughs> and he was suspended for three days for that. Wow. Third grade. Um, so, so I have a quick question. Where do you find out about these cases? Or like you said, you find people who are impacted. Where do you look and what's your strategy for seeking them out? So a lot of that is very grassroots. That's going to community centers. Mm. That's going door to door. Just kind of canvassing neighborhoods that demographically will have the people that are most impacted. Um, so like that, in that specific case, I met them outside of the Bell Center on the west side it was just a matter of having a petition out she walked out of the um after school's uh little area and she had her two boys with her and we talked a little bit about funding and what more so like do you ever see any problems in the schools and she was really willing to talk to us Mm -hmm. um and so I followed up with her to meet her one-on-one and that's when she was telling me this story and it's kind of like (laughs) she really could have benefited from her child more receiving restorative practices like that technically yes falsifying a report and calling 911 is a felony but for a third grader like yeah I don't think he really understood what he was doing right so what's your strategy for actually getting these restorative practices put into the school well that goes back to the funding piece right so Mm -hmm. a lot of it is right now in uh my understanding is teacher trainings, like teachers aren't necessarily trained in restorative practices. Um, it's just not part of the curriculum in schools. Mm-hmm. Um, it, right now, there are, it's very piecemeal. Like a lot of different teachers have it in individual classrooms around the city. Yeah. And I'm hoping to kind of maybe bring some of those together to show how they're working. Yeah. Um, but ultimately, to show how it's working, to get the funding to prove that this works. Um, Mm -hmm. and it is part of dismantling the school to prison pipeline. um, Okay. Can you explain what that is? Sure. So for people listening. So the school to prison pipeline essentially is saying that the way the system is set up now, we are setting up 
mostly poor black, brown children um, on the path towards incarceration. Yeah. Um, I believe it's once a kid is suspended from school, um, they are 80% more likely to head towards being incarcerated. And so in, especially in the city, what that means is you're sending more black and brown children eventually adults to prison Mm -hmm. because once you're out of school like if you have parents who can't take time off you're just kind of floating around at home floating around in the neighborhoods you could get into other um activities in the neighborhood um and it's just um complete cycle yeah cycle right Um, yeah so dismantling the school to prison pipeline you know how can we from the get-go um before they're out in the streets before they get the opportunity to learn we want them to learn in schools we don't want them to learn from the people on the streets right Mm -hmm. yeah Um, absolutely so keeping kids in school is definitely part of that and those Mm -hmm. restorative practices so looking at the child as a whole again um i think is an incredibly important piece to making sure that school is a joy to be in it should be a joy to learn Mm -hmm. um and then combating all of the outside issues um, because, I mean, we may not be fixing poverty with education, but poverty is the underlying issue here. Mm-hmm. And that's what happens in these neighborhoods. So, Yeah, thank you for explaining all that. I, sure. I do want to go back to Citizen Action in a little bit, but first sure. I want to more focus on you. Sure. Um, where did you grow up? And what is your educational background? Sure. Um, so I grew up in the city of Buffalo. Um, I am mostly a West Side girl myself. Mm-hmm. I went to um, school 19 in Lafayette High School. And this is those two experiences. Like, this is why I'm really happy to be working in the Buffalo Public Schools and with the Buffalo Public Schools. Um, and then I went, spent a year at Canisius, was mm-hmm. not a big fan. And then I went and finished my bachelor's in public communication from Buff State. I have a master's in integrated marketing communication from Bonaventure, and I'm currently working on my master's in public administration over at Buff State. Okay, so I wanted to go back to, um, yeah, either uh, elementary school or high school. Do you have any particular memories there that really shaped um, you becoming an activist and a community organizer? Um, it's funny. Uh, I think because it's my lived experience as a woman of color, most mm-hmm. most of all, um, being the the daughter of two parents of color. Um, and, you know, when I get really offended, I have had experiences where, you know, I'm clearly a little bit more educated now and I have these degrees and people feel like it's okay around me to talk about those kids air quotes, Mm. those kids um, in the Buffalo Public Schools and how they're all, you know, they're all just bad kids and they're not worth anything and they're not going towards anything. And I get very offended because I was was one of those kids. I mean, just in general, like where, what kind of circumstances would you be in where that would be said? I've had, I've had that conversation in my last master's program. Wow. Um, They said that kids in the Buffalo Public Schools aren't going to be anything. And then I said, I don't think they knew. And I was like, actually, I come from Buffalo Public Schools. Right, yeah. And, like, I'm not your city honors hutch tech. I went to Lafayette. <laughs> like, yeah, yeah. Um, they were in danger of closing just a couple of years after I graduated. So that's the kind of school that I went to. Mm-hmm. And it's like, 
yeah um <laughs> so that ex- having those kinds of experiences like i know good people that came out of these schools yeah i am still friends with them um i am watching them raise their families and doing what they can and just also uh, on the organizing just seeing like these systems that keep them from being lawyers and doctors or whatever else you may consider respectable whatever that means mm-hmm. um i because I have those relationships with people who come from these these circumstances, I come from these circumstances, and my deep-seated feeling in, like, there needs to be dignity and humanity and a place for people to be humans, and that experience growing up in the Buffalo Public Schools and seeing how people outside of the school system looks at these people, like you're not going to tell me that they're nothing because, mm-hmm. one, I am them. Yeah. I come from my parents who are also them. My sisters are them. My best friend is them. Like, I I take it very personally. So that's why um, ultimately I came into the organizing world and whatnot is to bring, hopefully help others bring themselves that dignity and humanity uh, despite what is said on the outside. Yeah. What What's it like on a day-to-day basis? Like, do you find that it's, I don't know, like, is there a lot more negativity or do you find hope and positivity in the work that you're doing? Or I don't, I'm having trouble asking this question, but I guess on a, on a day-to-day basis, like what is your experience like now being on the activist organizing side of it and trying to work Mm -hmm. to fix things or help things that you see need Mm -hmm. your help? It's actually funny. I've been reflecting on that a lot lately Um, because every day is a struggle. Every Uh day I wake up, I am a woman of color. Um, I live, I mean, like I reflect on the fact that I pay rent. Mm -hmm. I am Native American and I am indigenous. My people are from here and my people were killed for this land that everybody else owns. And now my landlord owns a house on the land that we used to be on. And it kills me on a daily basis that I pay rent to live here. Yeah. Um, knowing what my ancestors, the, the the lineage that gave birth to what is now me, like that is a daily struggle. Mm-hmm. Um, and so dealing every day is hard. And I, you know, I talk to other people that feel the daily struggle all the time. And I think I find positivity, I guess you could say, or at least a sense of hopefulness in that camaraderie with other people, knowing the struggle, knowing what it's like being a person of color um, being able to talk openly with other indigenous people about how we feel, um, especially like a lot of times I think about the fact that in organizing spaces, we talk about, um, people of color so generally, and we talk about racism. And up until recently, I wasn't able to articulate that while yes, racism is terrible, it's horrible. It needs to be dismantled. It wasn't necessarily anything that I personally really related to um and i had to really think about what that meant and what i understood it as finally is thinking about my lineage my heritage my history um settler colonialism is my daily thing everywhere i look around are systems that were created by old oppressive white people centuries ago Mm -hmm. and everything is just kind of built up around that so um Dealing with all of that is a daily struggle, but again, I find hope in others who see these systems, who see who can look at a poor person and not think that it's their own fault. 
Mm-hmm. Right. Right. I have respect for the people that can do that, do that. Yeah. You know, cause it, to me even, um, yeah. Uh, poor, poor people are not poor by choice. Yeah. They do not, they do not wish to be poor. Mm-hmm. <laughs> There's right. just, I, I, I myself have been poor. Like we grew up poor. Um, and then, uh, we eventually made our way up, but after my parents passed away, um, I was back in that position, kind of like living paycheck to paycheck in sometimes not even then. Yeah. Um, so you mentioned talking with, um, other people of color and connecting with them. Where, where do you meet them and where do you see them? Yeah. I'm really interested, I guess, in how, like-minded people find each other and then ultimately decide to work together for a greater cause. So if Mm -hmm. you can speak to that at all, that would be great. Um, So a lot of it is finding where the spaces are created to be able to have these conversations because these are really hard conversations. You can't necessarily have a conversation around race, racism, settler colonialism with just anybody off the streets, right? Because these are hard, especially for a lot of white people or for people of color who have never really thought of it. Like, the way I look at it, a lot of people are color are so like ingrained in just trying to survive. Mm-hmm. They can they don't have the time, the resources, or anybody to really talk with them. Me personally, my journey towards this um, started when I was working for my former employer, um, where we would have conversations around race and racism. Um, on a greater like staff scale, mm-hmm. which was great. I don't think everybody ever, everybody at once got it, but you can kind of feel who is more open to these conversations. And after a while, you can get a better sense from people who are open to having these conversations and being called out on maybe any kind of oppressive things that they're doing towards people of color and things of that nature. So for me personally, it, it's a matter of feeling people out um, mm-hmm. because you never know. I've, I mean, I've met people at like a grocery store mm-hmm. um, where we struck, struck up a conversation and somehow it led towards like food is like this in the Buffalo Public Schools. And then, and then just kind of that being able to talk to somebody like I was able to like ascertain after a while, like, I think you'd be open to having a little bit more of a deeper conversation. So we would set up a one on one. And they were. Um, so I don't know if there's a perfect formula for yeah, finding no, the like-minded there, there folks. definitely isn't. But I just, I, I think, I don't know, especially like lately and just how there's been so much upheaval in our society and mm-hmm. people are looking to connect, but I don't think it's necessarily always matching up. So you, that was a good answer. <laughs> Thank okay. you. Um, what has it been like uh, to grow up in Buffalo, New York, and then what have you seen change and any thoughts on its future? Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, this is a really interesting time to talk about that because of this whole quote-unquote resurgence. Um, growing up in Buffalo, I have, especially going to, again, a school like Lafayette, right? So I don't know if you've heard lately all of the talk about you know city honors and the admissions process for that right and you know the private school parents like and just all this uh, squabble over yeah can you honors. just just really briefly explain it for people listening who might not know sure so the admissions process changed um very kind of marginally um they are giving preference to buffalo public students um if two kids came in one was bps and one was like private school st mark's if they both had the same grades and the same test scores the preference is then given to buffalo public rather than the private school okay 
And parents were mad over this, citing all kinds of issues and problems. Um, but anyway, uh, City Honors has a ton of resources. From my understanding, is not even a Title I school. Title I being a certain percentage of your population has to be at or below the poverty line or something like that. Mm-hmm. Um, so they have a lot of resources, a lot of alumni um, that are doing really well in like CEO positions and just doing all kinds of things. Um, I went to Lafayette where we were made to feel like we were the others. Yeah. Um, we were not the kids that were fought over district-wide um so that is more or less my experience um at least in that sense and then just kind of growing up and going to these local schools like hearing people say oh i've heard like these bps kids are nothing and i'm just again i'm sitting here like no (laughs) i'm here hi hi. (laughs) i'm in the exact same class that you are and mm-hmm. I remember not to swear on this thing. You I'm can, in, it's okay. <laughs> I'm in the exact same fucking class as you. <laughs> there we go. <laughs> um, you can't talk to me that way. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. So, uh, and so then having grown up a little bit, a little bit poorer, but having parents that worked so hard to make sure that we were involved in community events. My mom worked for the Community Foundation as a program um, officer for a literacy foundation or mm-hmm. a literacy group. And my father, up until he passed away, was working with uh, the MOCA Project, Men of Color Health Awareness. Mm. Um, and so being involved in the community was always something that was important to me. So I always knew that. So I grew up in the schools, but I also are uh, in, the, in the city. And I also had a very strong sense of community. Um, There's something called the 21st Century Foundation, or fund, sorry. Um, And me and my sister are founding members. My Mm -hmm. mom signed us up for $1,000 to share a vote in this program that essentially awards money to community groups. And she did that, and I still have the news article saved somewhere in the house. It says she bought us this, even though we were 10 and 9, or Mm -hmm. 10 and 8 at that point, um, because she wanted us to have a sense of ownership in our city. Wow. So it's really ingrained from the time I was younger. Yeah. Um, And now, having had all these experiences, my sense of ownership in the community, and being in these systems where people think these kids are are just no good or whatever, um, and then being in the midst of this resurgence. Mm-hmm. quote unquote yeah so, yeah so what what how would you describe this resurgence and what are your thoughts on it canal side is pretty <laughs> i'm sure the medical campus i'm sure there will be some medical breakthroughs that happen but to me none of it means anything because it's pushing out the people who have stuck here mm-hmm. throughout the years when buffalo was considered at its worst yeah um none of that means anything to me uh the west side is completely different from what i remember it to be i just had a conversation not too long ago with a woman who now lives in north tonawanda and we were talking about the west side and i'm just like yeah i'm still there and i'm paying so much for rent she goes i left years ago because it's not our west side anymore yeah can you what what would be the difference like what do you remember and what is it now everything feels very suburban to me it's starting to feel suburban um so like, so I grew up mostly on West Elevon, closer towards the Elmwood Village before it was the Elmwood Village, right? Before it is what it is today. And now, and I was really sad to move from there because the house was sold to a developer. The rent was not going to stay where it was, um, which was very affordable for me at the time. And I was very sad to leave. But now I go to the Elmwood Village and it's 
it's obnoxious. I mean, it it just doesn't feel like the community that it was when I left. Mm -hmm. And even when I left, it was still changing. Um, It just feels just way more suburban than it used to. Um, yeah. And I see that happening a lot in the city. And it's because the suburbs are coming into town. Mm-hmm. Um, they, are, it, they are coming into town way more. And that drives all the prices up. And mm-hmm. that is driving the black and brown people out of the city who can't afford it. Yeah. Do you have any ideas on ways it could be done better? Because to me, I, I saw this happen in Austin, Texas, where I lived for a while. And, you know, I think it would be really wonderful to see buffalo grow in population and grow in community but if it follows models like austin it's it's not going to go very well so do you have any thoughts on ways that buffalo could learn from other cities or just do something different that would actually be good for the people that live here now so a lot of that has to do with the fact that we are a very capitalistic system right everything yeah everything everything comes (laughs) down down to the dollars Mm mm-hmm And what we need is more policies in place that protect people that have been living in their homes forever, but rents around them are rising, Mm. right? Uh, The fruit belt is a really good example of what's going right. Like they're doing these land trusts. Um, They're really fighting hard for their own community. It's the people in the fruit belt that are fighting for the fruit belt. And I think that that is extremely powerful. Um, And I, you know, hats off to the organizers that do that, um, do that work with them. Um, so I think that just kind of that community ownership of the neighborhoods that you live in, mm-hmm. right? Right. Um, I do think that affordable housing needs to be a thing, but I also think that we need better opportunities for people of lower incomes to own homes. Mm-hmm. Like the most sustainable way I think you can have to have a neighborhood is the people in that community owning their homes. Exactly. Um, so, I mean... It's a matter of placing value in community, in community ownership, and the diversity that is here um, over over capitalistic gains. Yeah, good answer. I, I like that. <laughs> so I guess now we can talk a little bit more about citizen action. I, I liked all that you said about the educational piece of it, and feel free to talk more about that. But what... Um, how would you describe what Citizen Action is and what other initiatives do they work on? And also, it's statewide. You listed a few few places earlier. I guess, yeah, where is it located? And yeah, mm-hmm. just, just talk about Citizen Action. <laughs> so my office, um, the Western New York chapter, is at 49 Virginia Place in Allentown. So Citizen Action is a statewide organization working on Um, a bunch of different initiatives. I mostly focus on education. That is just um, how it's all set up. But we're also, now that we've recently hired another organizer, um, also going to be working on healthcare. Citizen Action was actually pretty um, integral in the ACA. um, The Affordable Care Act. Yes. Yes. Okay. (laughs) Um, They they were integral in that. And so um, we're looking to kind of bring up the fight again. And occasionally we have a statewide campaigns organizer who bless her soul, goes from Buffalo to New York City to Albany and just everywhere, all over the state, all the Uh time. And she's working on, like, paid family leave, um, Mm. things of that nature. And then just as an organization, we tend to support things. Like, I got the word out about the Albany Lobby Day today um, Mm. for legalization of marijuana. Okay. Um, That was today? Yeah. Yeah. Which I absolutely believe in. Right. Um, 
Uh, so as an organization, so locally, again, I'm working on mostly education, but on the statewide level. So that's when we fight for statewide policies, um, statewide uh, funding, but also federally. So we also just got um, Buffalo's voice heard on ESSA, the Every Student Succeeds Act, uh-huh. on the ESSA, um, which is a federal policy that sets um, guidelines and benchmarks and how do we measure uh, and evaluate education state by state. And mm-hmm. then um, the state commissioner, Elia, came to Buffalo last Thursday and heard from Buffalo what we, what we want to see. Mm. So we want to see... Um, more supports towards restorative practices we want to see like in our code of conduct we want to see essa basically uplift the the work that we did in the code of conduct as um you know this is how we measure and evaluate how students are doing and how teachers are doing and things of that nature so generally and it, it is bringing power to parent voices and engaging parents to do more parent outreach because again i mean I personally believe, I don't have kids, right? Yeah. I believe I am invested in the well-being of the students of today because they are, you know, the people and workers of tomorrow, really. Yeah, absolutely. Um, but the the best advocate for children are their parents. So that's yeah. what mostly I do personally. How do you, again, I feel, I always am asking this question, but how do you engage with the parents and are you calling them, meeting them one-on-one, sending out emails? Like, what, what's the way to talk with parents? Uh, all of the above. Okay. Absolutely. <laughs> um, I, I mean, we've been doing a lot of door-to-door work right now, just kind of meeting people at their doors. Um, but I go to parent events. Mm. The Buffalo Parent Teacher Organization definitely holds a lot of events. Um, we table at different places. Um, and it, it's just trying to meet people where they're at like I went to that push buffalo solar jam on Saturday to meet new people because I knew that they were going to bring members of the community from the surrounding area yeah and there's likelihood that because of the free food and the free events that there would be kids there right and their parents brought their their parents yeah that's really good yeah Mm -hmm. I think the uh, concept of meeting people where they're at is I've heard it a couple of times on this podcast and I just, yeah, it's completely true. So Mm -hmm. yeah, I like that. Um, Can you tell me a little bit about what happened? I guess it was like two weekends ago with the conference that Citizen Action worked on. What happened there and what was Buffalo's contribution to it? Sure. So two weeks ago, yeah, you're right. Two (laughs) weeks ago, it was Justice Works, the annual conference that Citizen Action puts on. Um, what that is, it's, we, we call it the progressive conference of New York state. We we bring people from all around the state and even cities that don't have a citizen action chapter. Um, and so people from around come to this, to this really great conference and it kind of transforms every year. Um, still sticking to that, you know, progressive New York state, um, theme that we have. Um, but it kind of it develops and there's workshops on, you know, there was a climate justice panel. Um, there was, you know, education, uh, education justice panel, um, or workshop rather. And then there is also speakers like Glenn Martin who founded the close Rikers campaign. 
Um, what is the Close Rikers campaign? Uh, so I can't speak too in depthly about yeah, just, it. Just, just a little bit. I just know that it was. It, it is a campaign to close Rikers Island, mm-hmm. um, a I believe federal corrections facility i'm not 100 percent sure that's okay me uh, either but we can look it up and i can link to it okay later yeah. um but they had him as the speaker and they had uh the attorney general eric schneiderman spoke um spoke as well yeah what did he talk about i've heard him speak before but that was like a year or two ago so what was his speech about See, now you're calling me out because I, I oh, actually you were, worked. Oh, you I had worked. to work. Okay, that's okay. No <laughs> worries. We'll, we'll figure it out later. But I think, I mean, he's just doing so much work right now on so many fronts, uh, mm-hmm. federally and statewide. Right. I know he is very, um, he, he very much likes uh, citizen action and he works mm-hmm. with us all the time on different issues. So I know it was a positive um, yeah. talk okay. that he gave. I just that's good. don't assume <laughs> Not a lecture. Just right. talking to you. Good. And then... Um, and then I think personally for me, one of the best parts about Justice Works is just the, the ability to network with people who are working on either very similar campaigns, but on the other side of the state, mm. or even just to gauge what is, else is going on. Like I said, I only work on education here in Buffalo. I yeah. actually love hearing from New York City organizers about what they're doing on criminal justice. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm very much interested in all of it. So... Um, that is what we did and like again basically networking workshops on a whole host of different issues like I, you had Jim Anderson on here yeah, yeah and he did um a workshop on foreign policy now we don't really do a whole lot on foreign policy but right. there are those certain um workshops that you know it's out of citizen action's purview but is interesting and people yeah. did get a lot out of it so that's good. Yeah, I know that Jim likes to use the phrase connecting the dots a lot. Mm-hmm. So he'll like go travel different places and see similarities and differences, but also really trying to find those issues that resonate with people all over. And yeah, it, it's, a, it's a global struggle, he says. Yes. <laughs> yeah. It's a global struggle. So yeah. Right. Um, and then just one other bit, like um, I got to attend one workshop. Um, mm. It was on the Constitutional Convention, and I didn't know much about it beforehand. I knew a lot of unions and other progressive organizations are against the Constitutional Convention. Yeah, I'm really interested in this. So, what what did you learn, and what do you th- what have you what do you think now? <laughs> right. Um, so, I'm with them on saying no to it. Um, for the purposes that we have an incredibly Republican-controlled government mm. um, in general. State government. Yeah. Well, federal, too, but yeah. state is what we're talking about now. Yeah. Okay. Um, so right now, I am not comfortable with opening up the doors to the Constitution because with a Republican-controlled government, we likely face losing more than we would gain by opening it up. Yeah. So in that sense, like... Otherwise, I'm not opposed to the idea of revisiting a document every, was it, 10 years? It might even be 20. Yeah, 20 yeah. years. It is 20 years. Every, re- revisiting a document that governs us every 20 years. Like, to me, that idea makes sense. But yeah. in our political climate as it is, yep. to do it this year, to me, is, you again, you, worth, you risk losing more than what you would gain. Yeah, and just, you, I think I know this, but I want you to clarify to make sure it's right. The... The question on the ballot in November for voters is whether or not to open up the Constitution, to have a constitutional convention, right? So it's, yeah, the decision is in New York voters' hands in November. Correct. And it's an off election year. So 
that also brings up the issue of uh, just voter turnout and registering to vote. Mm-hmm. Was there any talk about that at your workshop? Um, not in the workshop necessarily, but I know that it is something that we want to kind of semi-focus on because Citizen Action also is a C4. So mm-hmm. we do have the ability to go out and endorse candidates. And we only endorse candidates that align with our progressive policies and what we want to see in the world. Yeah. So um, what we like this summer, one Saturday a month, I want to establish only voter reg registration canvassing i want to get people out on doors asking people have you registered to vote and we did this last summer and we got you know we got people to sign up at the doors we brought out the forms there yeah um and so i really want to get back to that because 2018 is going to be so important right it's gonna be so important and i'm so excited and i'm almost feel like I, I don't know. I, I'm just very excited for the 2018 elections. And so I want to spend some time this year yeah. um, making sure that voter registration is up because it is incredibly low in Erie County, actually. Yeah, it's really low. And I mean, the I'm, you know, just kind of wading into this election season. But I already know that, yeah, the yes or no on a constitutional convention, the Erie County Sheriff's race is this mm-hmm. fall. So even though it's an off year, it's really important for people to be voting this mm-hmm. November. And I guess my hope is that because of last year's presidential election, more people will realize that what they do matters. Oh, yeah. So. I mean, like I said, as an organization that can endorse candidates, we get people who want to come work with us for the sole purpose of that is like yeah. they want to run for office eventually. And I've seen an uptick in that. And so this has been my first year in organizing as a as a paid profession. Mm. And so doing it during this election season in an organization that can endorse it, has, there's been an incredible response towards that. Yeah. A lot of people looking at the 2019 school board elections already. <laughs> wow. um, yeah. Every seat is up. Oh my gosh. Every okay. single seat is up. Um, looking at the political landscape, there are four people running for Erie County legislature Yeah. because Betty Jean is giving up her seat to run for mayor. Right. And it's like all of this interest in all these different positions that weren't there before. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, you can definitely tell that the air is different. Like people are really paying attention now, realizing that we really can make a difference in our local governments and right. how much better that is for everyone. Yeah, I've been really blown away um, about the, you know, leaving the Paris Climate Treaty and all the states and cities and everything that has that have stepped up. And mm-hmm. it's it's a little you know unnerving that we have corporations and states negotiating with the UN but at the same time that's that's how it is and mm-hmm. I guess this is a good segue yeah in time wise too about I'd like to hear what your thoughts on climate justice and what that means to you mm-hmm. and then kind of take it towards uh, Standing Rock also but if you just wanted to start out with yeah, your thoughts and experiences with climate justice and mm-hmm. so climate fun. justice for me, um, I don't think goes far enough. Climate justice, as it is right now, is very focused on, and that, to an extent, I understand because we, you know, the old saying, "It is what it is." We are a capitalistic society. People need to work. Yeah, right? people need to be able to feed their kids and have a roof over their head. So mm-hmm. I get the emphasis on green jobs. Um, you know, solar uh, companies and things like that and understanding the transition and making sure that it's fair to people that need to work for a living. Like, 
the coal miners are losing their job, but we want to make sure that you have, you know, a wind farm that you can go work on after, right? right? Yeah. So I understand all of that. I really do. But I don't think it goes far enough in a greater understanding of our relationship with the planet. Mm -hmm. Like, we do not exist without this planet. Yeah. Um, If we are killing it, like, the water will take over our shorelines and decrease the amount of land we have to live on. Um, If we cannot breathe air, we do not live. (laughs) It is Mm -hmm. very much that simple. And to deny that we are only hurting ourselves um, and treating the planet like it is not part of how we live, um, to me, I feel like is not greatly emphasized because it's not as sexy as transitioning how you work. You know, right. rather than how we are. Yeah, it seems like there's just been such an overtake of like Western philosophy and science and keeping people separate from nature mm-hmm. that, yeah, the idea of us being connected might be a little too like, right. I, Na- I'm, na- I'm waving my hands in the air. <laughs> I'm, I don't know how to describe it, but it is not. Na- nature, right. nature is not your weekend in the Adirondacks. Exactly. Nature is right here in this room looking yes. at each other. We are in nature. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, and that matters. Mm-hmm. So I, I would like to see it go a step further. And the reason why I say that, and this might be a good um, segue into the uh, Standing Rock stuff too. Yeah, bring it all is, in. That's good. <laughs> um, is that relationship between planet and person mm. is very much rooted fundamental in a lot of indigenous beliefs in this country. Yeah. Um, that planet was very much respected. There are, um, in the cycle of festivals that happen, um, at least for Haudenosaunee culture, um, which is where I'm from, I'm Seneca. Um, we have festivals around strawberries. <laughs> we yeah. have corn festivals. Like we appreciate what came out of the planet that sustains us. And the least we can do is to also take care of it because it's a mutual relationship. Yeah, right. right. And so I personally would like to see more of that happening. And the reason why Standing Rock was so important, why it was more than an environmental thing, was because they were infringing on indigenous lands. And so I think climate justice on a broader scale needs to have more indigenous rights platforms in place Mm. um, because... And this is how I feel as somebody with that lineage and heritage. Like I have an obligation to this planet and to the people who came before me to take care of this earth mm-hmm. and to understand that relationship and to talk about that relationship so that other people can come to understand that. And we need to, yeah, I was at the People's Action um, weekend in Washington, D.C., Okay. And it was just this big national conference for this national organization, People's Action. And I was so impressed. Um, I went to their climate justice workshop, and they have these platforms for how they want to see climate justice handled in this country. And they, like, their third or fourth platform, which I I loved, was protecting indigenous land, protecting indigenous rights, because it is part of who we are to take care of the planet. Yeah. And that was amazing to me because I often feel like indigenous people are an afterthought in conversations around climate justice. You know, to me, it feels like y'all took our land Mm -hmm. (laughs) and then you poisoned it. And then now you're trying to do right by it. But all the while we're back here going, we've been trying to tell you forever. Yeah. You have the answer. Like you (laughs) you can do it. Yeah. Right. We have some systems in place before and we were doing just fine. (laughs) Yeah. Um, So, 
Yeah, can you... I haven't talked about Standing Rock on this podcast at all. And I mean, I think people... I mean, I was blown away. Like, I don't know when I started hearing about it, but relatively early. And then just the months and months that went by without news coverage of it was just crazy. And so I don't know how many people listening even now still understand what happened. But if you could just give a brief summary of of the entire I mean it's huge I know but the right. Standing Rock movement what what caused it mm-hmm. what happened and where it is now because right. I I've heard this a couple of times from people like oh that it's over and it's like it's so not over mm-hmm. so so yeah just okay. take it away <laughs> sure so Standing Rock um it started initially because the and of course the name of the pipeline or the company um, in charge of all this is escaping my head right now. Uh, it's Dakota Access Pipeline. Right. I, oh, I forget the company that. Oh, we don't need to say their name. Okay, that's fine. <laughs> anyway, uh, so they, I guess, did a study in a close by town, um, proposed the pipeline there. The residents said, oh, Bismarck, North, um, South Dakota? Bismarck? Yeah. yeah, Bismarck. Yeah, yeah, Bismarck. Yeah, yeah, that's right. And <laughs> it was determined by the residents of Bismarck that they did not want the pipeline where it was proposed because it could potentially poison their waters. Mm-hmm. They not said, in my backyard, right? Yeah. So the the company essentially listened to them and re- redesigned it so that it basically went under the town, but it was infringing on where the Standing Rock tribal territories are. Mm-hmm. Again, now these now these people the tribal the standing rock sioux came up and said wait no this pipeline is going to potentially poison our waters like we cannot live without water Mm -hmm. it is physically impossible and they went ahead and started uh building it anyway yeah and my understanding of how the greater movement really started was i think it was like a team of 10 standing rock sioux teenagers ran from Standing Rock in South Dakota to Washington, D.C. to pass along a note or basically their plea to President Barack Obama, please don't do this. You are potentially killing us, right? This is, and this is why this is on one hand an environmental issue, yes, but it was infringing on our indigenous rights to our lands. There was Mm -hmm. a treaty of like, treaty of 18 something, 1800s, that granted that tribe that plot of land, um, even if it wasn't formally the the reservation. Mm-hmm. Um, and they knew this. The Standing Rock Sioux knew this, and they wanted to protect their lands. And, of course, it's always a battle when it comes to big money, big energy, and all that jazz. Yeah. Um, and so after a while, like, they decided to just say screw it, and they started occupying the land. Mm-hmm. Um that is how these movements happen. You have to basically just say, you cannot do this. And it brought in people from around the country. Honestly, I think from around the world. I think a yeah. lot of people ended up And even, there. I mean, yeah, people from everywhere and then different tribes too. I remember hearing about like from South America, it was like the biggest gathering of tribe, indigenous tribes, mm-hmm. like in hundreds of years or something. I don't know. It was, it kind of blew me away. Right. Um, so yeah, all of that organizing, um, I, you know, I loved it. I really wish I had gone. Mm -hmm. Um, I 
found multiple excuses not to go. Um, but having seen like just all of these indigenous groups coming together and then even people from Black Lives Matter went because they understood it. Like these are our brothers and sisters who are fighting for their rights. Mm-hmm. You know, we're not just going to stand down and not be with them. Right. Mm-hmm. And it was great to see that sense of solidarity from everybody. And so for me, what I got most out of Standing Rock even though I didn't go, I didn't, I haven't really participated in the local Buffalo Stands with Standing Rock group. For me, as an Indigenous person, I just appreciated being part of the conversation. Yeah. Um, I appreciated feeling just a sense of like, there are people who are like me, who are actually like me, not just in the broader sense of people of color. There are indigenous people who are doing this work and who are, you know, motivating people around the world to see, like, the injustice that we are still facing. This is settler colonialism in real time. Mm-hmm. Um, a bunch of white people who own a company basically said, we're going to build this here anyway because yeah. your lives do not matter as much as those in Bismarck who said that they don't want the same thing. Yeah, and the private security stuff was terrifying and the the violence against people mm-hmm. was also just right and that was that was really i mean there were some like police but a, a lot of that was private security teams too and mm-hmm. that just that really was right. mind-blowing yeah so i think for me um again part of this the better part of what came out of all of this. Like, obviously, there's still legal battles going on. The Standing Rock Sioux Tribe are still fighting the f- finalization of this pipeline and whatnot. So it's still definitely ongoing. Mm-hmm. Um, but for me, being over here, I think that I have a greater sense of people understanding Indigenous issues and bringing that to the table. Like... I think the last time that this happened on this scale was Wounded Knee in the 1970s. Mm-hmm. Uh, Wounded Knee, again, they it was the AIM American Indian uh, movement um, that took over a church on Wounded Knee that was built next to the gravesite of the last greatest uh, physical genocide of uh, free indigenous peoples. And so when they took over that plot of land in the 1970s, they took it over because it was their right, it was their land, and it had made such a splash. And, like, you know, they talked about it at the, um, what is it, the Academy Awards. Mm-hmm. When Marlon Brando won Best Actor, he instead sent in his stead uh, something Little Feather, and she talked about Wounded Knee and how Marlon would not be accepting this award because of the treatment of American Indians mm-hmm. in this country. Yeah. Um, and I have not seen, like, I, I study a little bit of um, indigenous activism, and that was the last biggest, I feel, splash of American Indian activism on a grand stage. So Standing Rock, to me, yeah, and I could be wrong, is the first time that it has been brought to the forefront since the 70s. Yeah, in, in your lifetime, then. Yeah. yeah. I um, I want to go back just really quickly to highlight something that you had said about the um, the teenagers that ran, and, you know, it was, you were calling it more than just an environmental movement, and for years, I have hated the term environmental for environmental law, environmental policy, all of that stuff, and I, I do see that it is the, yeah, the connection with earth that is 
so critical. And yeah, the way that indigenous people embody that is, is really important for people to see. And I, I don't know, I, to me, like climate justice and all of this stuff is really turning into a human rights issue. I don't, necessarily like it to just focus on the humans of this because there is the earth aspect and other animals Mm -hmm. too um but like we talked about it when we first met uh the kids who were suing the city or something oh yeah they're suing the federal government yeah yeah on behalf of yeah protecting their life liberty and property uh, and they're succeeding yeah it's amazing um yeah, the, the Trump administration is really, really trying to knock it down right now, but the courts are having none of it, and they're, mm-hmm. they're actually seeing this public trust doctrine mm-hmm. as um, a really uh, a valuable legal tool that's been going on for since the ancient Romans, and it, it's right. never been you know, overturned in U.S. court. It was just replaced by these environmental regulations. So that just, I don't know, they've, they've kind of failed. (laughs) Um, you know, people want to protect clean water act, clean air act, and they, they do kind of put a little bit of a stop to pollution, but clearly there's so many loopholes and, um, yeah, this, this new wave of public trust doctrine work is, is so exciting to me. Mm -hmm. I actually just talked uh, with Jim Anderson about this on his radio show. Right. Um, cause I really, all the election coverage just gets me so, um, down and kind of anxious. And then these like our children's trust public trust doctor and lawsuits will pop up and it's like this breath of fresh air as mm-hmm. I'm looking at stuff. So yeah, there's, there's a lot to be hopeful for. Um, but it is also this like day to day, insanity so yeah that's where we all have to find where we find hope yeah yeah (laughs) and I I liked what you had said before we started about how you take time for yourself and walk in Delaware Park every morning um I don't think enough people take that daily time and I definitely try to um but that's a good (laughs) way to recharge it started last year because I don't do well in heat so climate change is really gonna suck for me (laughs) um but I don't do well in heat and so the best time to appreciate summer temperatures is Mm. for me at like 6 30 in the morning at the park yeah yeah that's when it's most comfortable but yeah I've really found that time to use uh, for self-reflection and just an understanding of like what it is that I'm fighting for and just kind of gathering, like reflecting on my experiences and just finding hope in what I have seen in the, in the past. So yeah, that's great. Self-care is important. It is. (laughs) And it, it sounds so like, I don't know. I mean, self, it sounds selfish or something, but it's not like you can't give to other people if you're depleted. Yeah. So, absolutely yeah. you gotta take care of yourself like it's kind of like on in the airplanes when they say if you have little kids sorry you got to put on your own mask first and then put on their mask exactly That's yeah how you help others <laughs> make sure you're taken care of first yeah yeah thank you <laughs> all right i'm going to go to my sort of final questions um, where do you experience in yourself or society a world that is dying and then where do you experience a world that's being born so this was not part of my reflection this morning (laughs) but that is an interesting question um where do I see myself in a world that is dying where do you experience a a world that's dying and it can be really a personal thing or if you see something in our society that it's just 
its time is up and then what is emerging in its place mm-hmm. um so i can answer that with what i hope is dying in this yeah sense. that's great um it is essentially this focus on well one profit um it is clearly not the be all end all um this is why everybody is focusing more on climate change than they have in the past because we are realizing we cannot breathe our profits we Mm. cannot eat our gold Mm. (laughs) we cannot drink our dollar bills um i think it's this very much sense of selfishness and extraction um that we do not just to the planet but to each other Mm. right people oftentimes look at what they can get from other people and not necessarily give back, not reciprocating. And now that is incredibly selfish, right? Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. I think I, I, what I hope to see also is people of color standing up and realizing that these are systems that were meant that we are meant to change, right? So I want to stop seeing so many discriminatory practices and just in everything from housing to education to healthcare to electoral politics. Like we need to stand up and be more transformative of the world around us. Um, I have made it my own personal mission and I don't care how this sounds, but if I am setting something up, a press conference, a rally, my ultimate goal is to make sure that there is never a white man speaking. (laughs) (laughs) Never and never that. Just I prefer if we made so many uh, black, brown, indigenous leaders, like we didn't have to have a white man at the helm. You know Mm -hmm. what I mean? Um, Yeah. That is more or less what I want to see in the world is see more black leadership. A friend of mine recently moved to Maryland to work and she works in the political realm. And, you know, there's still a lot of bullshit to deal with in politics, but she feels happy because she's working for, in her words, a bomb ass black woman. Mm -hmm. And her boss, her boss's boss is a bomb ass black woman. And I'm like, I don't see that here in Buffalo. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) I would love to see that here. Yeah. Um, so anyways, that old world, that very extractive, taking things from each other and not really, not really respecting each other's humanity. Like that is probably a long-term issue I may never even see in my life happen, mm-hmm. but that is what I hope to see die. Cause it's, we need to rely on each other more. Um, I think that sense of individualism, that's what, ne- there we go. That's the world that needs to die. Yeah. The sense of individualism, you like go. you can do it all on your own, pull yourself up by your bootstraps mm-hmm. that needs to die. Yeah. Yeah. It I is very, totally agree. It's very much about community and each other. And I said this to somebody recently and I'm, they're like, uh, but humanity, you know, if you got to admit humanity sucks. And I go, yeah, it absolutely sucks. So the least we can do is to stop making it suck even more for each other. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. It's hard enough as it is. Yes. <laughs> we do not need to add it on to each other. Yeah. Yeah. And flip side, what's being born or what do you hope is being born? <laughs> the flip side of what I just said. Yeah. Um, yeah. <laughs> I mean, you can go that way. Um, or if you want to take it a different way. Um, um, I free. mean, ultimately, I what I want to see in the world is that love and respect for each other and love and respect for things that are different from us. Right. I 
I get chills when I hear people talk negatively about people from other countries, especially third world countries and things like that. Because I don't understand how you can have a disdain for something that you don't know. Mm-hmm. I love other countries. I love to travel. When I was younger, we had exchange students from all these different countries, like live with us for three months to a year. Um, I want to know all about, like, I obviously at the very root, like, I am an indigenous person and I want to be my culture and do all of that. But, like, the one thing I can say about globalization, I am so excited to meet somebody from Buenos Aires or somebody from Shanghai or something like that, right? Yeah. Um, And so I want there to be a love and respect for just the fact that we are a global community now more than ever. Um, And I just want to see people, like, just respect that you know yeah i I don't i don't like homogenous settings i don't Uh like everything to be the same um yeah i was driving through not too long ago with a friend from california in the neighborhood where every house looked like and even that like i was like pissed (laughs) off and like irrationally so because we're just driving through someone's neighborhood and i'm like all these houses all these gardens everything looks the same there's no character yeah no flavor it's like why do people live like this why do people want the same thing all the time every day yeah and from a like uh ecological perspective it's dangerous too like i mean diversity is strength (laughs) and it's adaptability so Mm -hmm. yeah exactly so yes i'm not a not a fan of uh, homogenous yeah situations (laughs) it's a good instinct i agree um well i guess yeah this is the the last question then do you have any final statements or asks for the people who are listening uh so i mean one on a personal level let's just start respecting each other let's learn about other people's differences um that's very basic to me is to tell everyone that um but i think so in terms of work, I'd like to talk about the rally for New York Health. It is this Friday from 12 to 2 at Niagara Square, so downtown Buffalo. Um, and I can just read this part. It's join the campaign for New York Health Friday, June 16th from noon to 2 um, for a lunchtime rally to support the New York Health Act. So basically we're asking, you know, for... Um, people to be there under the new york health act there are no co-pays no deductibles no out-of-network costs and care isn't limited to medical only um when i talk about health care i do like to like bring up the fact that i live me personally i live under a government that has in the sense in the sense universal health care i live under a government where my all of my care is taken uh, is taken care of at, any emergency room visits taken care of, all of my prescriptions are taken care of. I don't necessarily pay a dime, but I simultaneously live under the government of the Seneca Nation of mm. Indians, and the Seneca Nation provides all of that. Okay. I didn't know that. Yeah. That's that's really... So I want people to know that a form of socialized medicine does actually work here in the United right. States. Yeah. It's just on tribal territory, actually. Yeah. <laughs> Thank you. I did not know that. So I, per- good information I, to know. I personally, like myself, am not affected by that. But my husband, who is not an enrolled member of the nation, like he has a chronic issue and he needs health insurance mm-hmm. and health. The way people are dealing with health insurance in this country is insane. Yeah. Um, people just want to live. <laughs> <laughs> right. People want to live fully, you know, emotionally and spiritually and all the things that I've been talking about today. But people just physically want to live. Yeah. Um, and 
So I mean, I'm a big advocate for, I don't necessarily work on organizing people around healthcare. My coworker does, but I mean, I will absolutely get that word out there about healthcare because it is important. And I can tell you that there is a lot of relief in knowing that I am taken care of by the nation, no matter what. Yeah, that makes sense. Yeah. Well, thanks for being here today, Samantha. It was great to talk to you. All right. Thanks. Thank you so much for listening to the Keeping Things Alive podcast. My name is Laura Evans, and if you would like more information about me, this podcast, or other work that I care about, please visit www.keepingthingsalive.org.